You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. All right, so I love a, a great, shocking reveal of good news, right? A, a shocking reveal. I'm, I'm thinking, a little old school here, but most of you understand it, right? Antique Roadshow, anyone? Yes? Okay, the updated version for the rest of you, Pawn Stars, right? Rick and all the other people, Chumley, right? So, so I love it when someone brings in an item. It's old. They know it. They're just looking for like $100, right? The person goes, will you take $100, Rick? Rick's like, I don't know what this is. I need to call an expert, right? So the expert comes in, and it's worth thousands of dollars. And the shock on that person's face, right? The shock. That is uh, amazing. The shock of the, the news of what they own. In our passage today, we are going to look at the great mystery that was revealed to Paul that sent shock waves across first century Jews and Gentiles. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you, the mystery that was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is, according to his eternal purpose, accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Let us pray. God, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds, open our ears, help us to pay attention to what you have for us this morning. I pray that uh, while you've laid words on my heart, that you speak through me. Give me the words that you want me to say this morning, even if it's not in my notes. 
I pray that each of the, the listeners this morning connect with something in this passage, a wonderful passage about the gospel. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's look at our, our first point. Christians must learn and live out the grace of the gospel. Christians must learn and live out the grace of the gospel. So Paul starts our, our passage in verse 1 by saying, For this reason, which he is pointing back to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, uh, which Josh uh, covered last week about the Gentiles being brought together with the Jews as one body through the blood of Jesus. The Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were everyone else that was not a Jew. Remember that the definition, right? So Jews, God's chosen people, Gentiles, everyone else that was not a Jew. And there was this animosity between the two groups because even though the Jews were welcome were the Jews were too welcome the Gentiles to worship God with them and to follow God they were still looked down upon and there was still a separation between the two groups so when Paul says for this reason he is talking about bringing together the two groups back to verse 1 for this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So Paul is calling himself the prisoner of Christ, which is intentional. As Paul could have said that he was a prisoner of Rome, placing all the blame on Rome for arresting him. But Paul is not blaming anyone, nor is he complaining about his imprisonment. In fact, he's using his use of prisoner of Christ is seen multiple times throughout his writings and similar phrases and ideas of being imprisoned for Christ. This shows his heavenly perspective on his imprisonment and his suffering. Paul says he is imprisoned on behalf of the Gentiles because he was arrested while advocating for the Gentiles. As Acts 21 tells us, some Jews were upset that Paul was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and wanting the Gentiles to have the same access to God. So a group of Jews falsely accused Paul about, of bringing a Gentile beyond the court of Gentiles in the temple, which the temple rules did not allow. And in fact, we have seen signs that we've dug up at least two signs that say, punishable by death if you cross this line, if you cross the wall into where Gentiles are not allowed. So this, this group of Jews caused a riot, and the Romans had to step in to prevent Paul from certain death. So Paul's going to come back to this topic about being imprisoned in verse 13. So for now, let's put that to the side and keep moving through the text. There's a big shift in thought and style from verse 1 to verse 2. That shows us that Paul is interrupting himself. It's kind of like when uh, Pastor Josh goes off on a tangent, right? So this is what Paul's doing. He's going off on a little rabbit trail. Uh, so this is my entire passage. My entire passage is Paul's rabbit trail. Uh, but he'll get back to what he wants to talk about in verse 14, which Pastor Josh will talk about next week. So verse 2, it says, 
assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. Paul has been called to make sure that the Gentiles hear the gospel. In fact, he called himself the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans eleven thirteen. This was his calling. It was his gift from God to do so. Now, this does not mean that Paul only preached to the Gentiles. If you remember from uh, going through the book of Acts, Paul would regularly go preach to the Jews first at their synagogue when he arrived into town. But he did spend a majority of his ministry time ministering among the Gentiles because as Galatians 1, 15 and 16 says, God called him to minister among the Gentiles even before he was born. Paul felt this deep calling that he was to minister to the Gentiles. Moving on to verses uh, 3 through 5. It says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery, you ask? Verse 6 reveals that to us. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I have a definition of uh, what we'll, we'll use as our basis for the mystery this morning. John, do you want to switch that slide? Here we go, thank you. So basically it says, the mystery is the revelation of God's plan for the union of the Jews and the Gentiles through their union with Jesus, becoming one new body known as the church. As verse 3 says, this mystery was revealed to Paul, and then as verse 5 says, it was being revealed by the apostles and the prophets. This would have been new information for the church that was being revealed by God through the New Testament apostles and prophets. This would have been shocking news to both the Gentiles and the Jews. To us reading today, we go, well, what's the big deal, right? I mean, many many of us have heard Galatians 3.28, where Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, right? But we have to travel back to Old Testament times to understand, to fully grasp what Paul is laying out here. Because this would have been shocking to Paul's audience. And then I'll try to help us modern readers understand the shock of this news. Now what I'm going to walk through is not the full picture Obviously, I cannot do that in one sermon uh, about the, the between Israel and the law and how the Gentiles fit in. But I want to give you a glimpse of how this story unfolds. So starting in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God called Abraham and he told him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the people's 
on the earth, right? All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is the beginning of God's chosen nation of Israel. And including and included in Abraham's call is the promise to all the people in the world, both Jew and Gentile. Notice the story of Abraham that that God only gave him a promise. The law did not come in until later. The New Testament authors point this out to show that the relationship with God is by faith alone. The law was then given to Moses. And following God's law, God's intent was for the Jews to be an example to other nations, as it says in Deuteronomy 4. In Numbers 15, and I think this is my most important and shocking uh, verse, uh, cross-reference verse in my sermon prep, is when a Gentile wanted to follow God and dwell with the Israelites, God tells Moses this, when an alien resides with you or someone else among you and wants to prepare a food offering as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he is to do exactly as you do throughout your generations. The assembly is to have the same statute for both you and the resident alien as a permanent statute throughout your generations. You and the alien will be alike before the Lord. Did you catch that? The Jew and the Gentile will be alike before the Lord the same law and the same ordinance will apply to both you and the alien who resides with you. God did give the law to Israel, but he also wanted the Gentiles to come and to worship him as well. God invited the Gentiles to come alongside the Jews and do what they do. Even without being a descendant of Abraham, they were welcome to offer sacrifices and to follow the law as they worshipped God. This is showing that even in the law itself, it doesn't matter who your ancestor was. You could come to God by faith alone. When Solomon built the temple, another beautiful passage, his prayer of dedication included welcoming the Gentiles to the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, 32, and 33. Solomon says, even for the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land, because of your great name and your strong hand and outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, may you hear in heaven in your dwelling place. And do all the foreigner asks you. Then all the peoples of the earth, catch that, all the peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do, and know that this temple I have built bears your name. Even Solomon welcomed the foreigner. In the prophets, we get the book of Amos, where God calls out the practices of the Gentile nations. They were, they were wicked, they were nasty. Throughout the Old Testament, God is, is working among some Gentiles, such as Hagar and Rahab and Ruth. There are some mentions of, of Gentiles who, who joined the Jews in worship, such, in, such as in Nehemiah 10 and Esther 8, for those who want to 
go study all this later. But perhaps the largest example of God working through the Gentiles in the Old Testament is when the reluctant prophet Jonah was called to go preach to the Gentile city of Nineveh. And the entire city repented. The entire city repented. Now this wasn't, there, there are some other examples uh, where God's working uh, here and there throughout the Gentiles in the Old Testament, but this was not a widespread movement like we see Christianity was in the New Testament among the Gentiles. But as seen through Jonah, the Jews did not appear to share God's heart for the Gentiles. As Jonah, if you remember, right, fought God's call to go to Nineveh, and then he was angry when the entire city repented. He was so frustrated with God. He said, I knew that you were a gracious God. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. The attitude continued through the New Testament as well, where the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. As Josh shared last week, the Gentiles thought they were better than the Gen sorry, the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles, that God had chosen them, right? They were special. And so they treated the Gentiles poorly. And then in return of years and years of abuse, the Gentiles treated the Jews poorly. But in light of all those examples, hopefully you can see how last week's passage and our passage this morning is shocking news to the Jews and the Gentiles. When Paul says the two groups are now part of one new body, this is something that no one was prepared for. For the Jews, they thought that the Gentiles following the law in their community was how God was going to fulfill them blessing the nations. We see this in Acts 15, where the early church had to gather a council to fully explain to the Gentile Christians and to the Jews that the Gentiles did not have to follow the law. Right? They didn't have to do the same things that the Jews did from the Old Testament. They just had to believe in Jesus by faith alone. This was a shockingly different result than they expected. So back in our passage in verse 7, Paul writes, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Notice the connection Paul just made between the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one and him calling it the gospel. This is the good news, right? This is the message of the gospel. No longer is it the Jews and then everyone else who wants to worship God. It is Jesus bringing together everyone who believes in him in one new body. This is the gospel of the church. It does not matter whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, poor or rich, a PhD or no college at all. The Christian faith is by faith alone. And we must understand that we are now one in Christ. Since I started preparing the sermon and looking at it, I've been trying to think of an illustration of how our real world uh, could, could, 
how can we connect to this? And there's no such thing, right? I was thinking of all these mergers that have happened, and none of them are really, like, shocking to us. They don't really affect us. I mean, the one I could think of was when Amazon bought Whole Foods. But even that, like, does that really affect anyone besides, like, the two people here that maybe went to Whole Foods? Right? I mean, so there's no good example. So let's make up one. How can we have an example? Now, as a note, right, the antitrust laws that uh, would apply to these companies would certainly prevent any such merger from happening uh, due to the fact that it would either create a monopoly or uh, just be unfair to the open market. I understand that. Pastor Josh mentioned uh, this week Apple and Google. What if those two companies merged? What? Right? That we'd, we'd be shocked. And maybe our phones would change, right? But that's not, I don't know, that's not really something. How about, how about this one? How about if GM bought out Ford? <laughs> now you'd have the funny thing where all the Ford and the Chevy truck guys would be like, well, now we're part of the same company. I don't, I don't know what to do. Okay, for the nerds, right, Marvel and DC, what if those two companies merged? That would be shocking, right? I mean, it's not going to happen, but that would be shocking if I told you that happened, right? Okay, now we're getting to, I know, I know, this is a, a college sports crowd. Well, at least some of you. And the rest of you, you can understand because you see their passion, right? So what if the Big Ten and the SEC merged together? What? We would, we would, what? <laughs> I'll get one further. What if your college you root for merged with your rival college? That would shock you, right? Iowa and Iowa State, all of a sudden now, one new college? Florida and Georgia, one new college? <laughs> that is what's happening here. Just like these examples are really hard to believe that they would happen, the message of the mystery of the gospel was really shocking to the original audience. There is no way they would have believed it for the, the first time they heard it. This is why Paul had to be the one to say it. And that's why he had to be persecuted for it. If Paul was willing to suffer for this shocking news, then it must be real. So what is the application of this point? It must be how we live this news out. How do we show the gospel to others? We must learn the gospel and we must live out the gospel. This is the core foundation of our faith. This message is the most, it's in the most popular verse of all time, right? For God so loved the world. That means the whole world. Jews and Gentiles. He loved them so much that he sent his one and only son to die for our sins. So that anyone who believes in him, right, by faith alone, they can have eternal life. We are all sinners. Jews and Gentiles are all sinners in need of a savior. This is the gospel, and that, that is why we have, to, we have to offer this to the world, the good news. 
Jesus saves. Do we fully understand the weight of the gospel that makes different groups into one new body called the church? Do we grasp the effects it should have on our church and our lives? Now, the natural example of this text causes us to ask, how do we embrace other Christians who are a different race or a different culture than we are? Different cultures worship differently than I do. Different cultures have different pastors than what I'm used to. They preach differently. They may emphasize and support different causes than I do. How should I respond to that? I should praise God that there are different people. They are different than I am. And I should learn from them because they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. The first century Jews and Gentiles were different and they came from different backgrounds. And God still called them to be united as one new body in the church. And he calls us to do the same. In a similar vein, how do you view other churches that may not believe the same secondary issues that we believe in? That they, they argue for the other side of that. Do you see them as competition? Or do you see them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Another example would be where the church and Christians must ask themselves is how do we support and welcome the other gender? Personally, I enjoy listening to the women of Westwind. I enjoy hearing from them and what God is teaching them and their thoughts on, on a passage and their, their opinions because they have different life than I do, right? They see things differently in the world. Historically, the world has not listened to women, and the church should be different. We've had different life experiences, but the gospel says that we are members of the same body. So that means I should listen and support women. Now, I could go on for a while, Right? You could list hundreds of examples of how we're different and how we, we bicker and fight and split churches over all, all the issues. How can I show love to another Christian who votes differently than I do? How can I come together with another Christian who interprets the Bible differently? And on and on the list goes. But the gospel says that we are united in Christ, and yet it feels we are so divided. How can the church be, the Bi be what the, the Bible calls the church to be? It starts by showing love and compassion for others. Maybe trying to see the other person's perspective. See why they believe what they believe. Why do they support what they support? Ask them if they would share their story with you. Maybe we can learn something from each other if we tried this. That is how we can understand the mystery that is the gospel. The bringing together of different groups united in Christ. Once we understand the gospel, that brings us to my second point. Christians must work through the church to share the gospel. 
So after Paul has explained the mystery or the gospel message, he turns to what he is supposed to do with it. Backing up for, to verse 7 for just a moment, uh, Paul said that he was made a servant of this gospel. The gospel is his ministry. He is to share his revelation of the gospel to everyone. Being a ministry minister of the gospel is a heavy task. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.16 that he is compelled to preach and woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I love the way that the prophet Jeremiah talks about his call in Jeremiah 20 verse 9. He says that God's message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. For Jeremiah, God's message must come out and it must go to all. When God calls you to share his message with someone, it is best to obey his calling. Paul calls it a gift in verse 7. It is not only a blessing to share God's grace with someone, but it is an honor that God calls us to do something for him. Folks, God does not need us. God does not need West Wind. But he chooses to use us. I think that is where Ego uh, can be the downfall of many Christians. Some people will feel superior about the, the gifts that God has given them. Right? They, can, they can preach or they can sing or they, they wrote a book that sold a bunch of copies. When in reality, God doesn't need us. It is a privilege that he uses us. Paul emphasizes this humility that we should all have by showing the humility that he has in verse 8 where he calls himself the least of all the saints. Repeatedly, Paul makes remarks like this throughout his writings that naturally show his humility. This is not faking humility because it sounds good and makes him look good. No, this is genuine humility, showing how he feels about being called by God. God chose to use Paul, a Pharisee, who actively and joyfully persecuted Christians before God called him out of that. Paul did not think he deserved to be a, the apostle to the Gentiles. He did not think that he deserved God's love. But God still loved him, and God chose to use him. And we should have that same type of humility in our lives. God called Paul to what the rest of verse uh, 8 and verse 9 says, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now there's a lot of fancy poetic words in there, but basically Paul is saying that he has been called to share the wonderfully beautiful message of the gospel to the Gentiles and to explain to them the mystery that the creator of the universe has revealed to him. Verse 10 uh, uniquely um, is interesting. It's interesting to ponder as it reveals the perspective of the audience, of the dramatic story of the world. It says this, meaning the mystery that was revealed, is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is saying that the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm are watching how the story of the gospel uh, plays out in the world through the church. The spiritual realm, of course, is the angels and the demons. They're intently watching this because they're not all-knowing beings. 
right? They were shocked by this news as the Jews and the Gentiles were. Verse 11 reminds us of this greater storyline that the church is a part of. It says this, once again, the mystery Paul is talking about, is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The beautiful joining together of the Jews and the Gentiles through Jesus was always the plan. The mystery that is the gospel message was hidden from previous generations for ages and from the spiritual realm because it was revealed at the right time according to God's eternal plan. The Old Testament law of the Jews was not a failure, but it had a purpose in the storyline to point the world to Jesus. And this story has an end, right? Where we will all live in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus. Revelation 7 gives us a glimpse of this picture of what that will look like around the throne of God. There will be a vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, praising God. That is where our story of the world is heading. Verse 12 gives us a reminder where it says, In him, that's Jesus, we have a boldness and confident access through faith in him. Looking at how God called Paul to, the, to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to share the gospel with them, the gospel was always God's plan. And we can have boldness because God's plan is working. And in fact, he has told us how it is going to end where all the nations are going to be surrounding the throne of God. With this boldness and confident access to God, just like Paul, we also have been given a job. Jesus commissioned his disciples and in turn commissioned us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you, right? Jesus is with you always to the end of the age. That's why we can be bold and have confidence to share the gospel because Jesus sends us and he is with us. We should all say, I am happy to serve God however he calls me. How can we have this attitude? By putting away our ego, keeping our eyes on God when we are serving him. The other day I was reading an excerpt from the book, The Christian's Secret Life, sorry, no, The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life by Hannah Whittall Smith, an 1800s Quaker author. She wrote two things that struck me. One, she said that we should um, she said that we should uh, will what God wills and shall obey his sweet commands, not because it is our duty to do so, but because we ourselves want to do what he wants us to do. The second thing she wrote is this. What have we to do with thinking whether we are fit or not fit for service? The master workman and that's God, surely has a right to use any tool he pleases for his work. 
And it is plainly not the business of the tool to decide whether it is the right one to be used or not. He knows, and if he chooses to use us, of course we must fit. God wants you to serve in his church and to share the gospel to non-Christians. Maybe that sounds intimidating, right? But it doesn't have to be. A lot of times people hear, share the gospel, we immediately think, oh, sharing with a stranger on the street? Nope, that's not for me, right? I understand that. That's not for me either. That's very anxiety-inducing. Now, if God calls you to go share the gospel with a stranger on the street, you better go do it, right? If God's tugging at your heart to go share, then go do it. Maybe God's tugging your heart to have a gospel conversation with your neighbor or your coworker or a friend. Or maybe the, the clerk that you see at the gas station every week. There are plenty of ways that God can choose to use you. It starts with having intentional conversation and being confident because you know that God is with you. Now, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, starting a Bible study. Maybe it's something just pushing you just a little bit out of your comfort zone, right? Maybe it's starting a Bible study. Maybe it's having that conversation with a neighbor. And guess what? You're part of a community here at Westwind. God has you at this church for a reason. Maybe you, you, you want to have that conversation with a coworker, but you need some encouragement. I bet you could find someone to encourage you, to give you uh, maybe some, an outline or something, right? Maybe you could find someone to join a Bible study with non-Christians here at Westwind. I bet you could. That is what is great about being on mission with each other. Finally, we are at point number three. Christians must be willing to endure affliction for the gospel. After Paul shared about his role as the apostle to the Gentiles, and his revelation of the mystery that Jews and Gentiles are one new body, he concludes with some encouraging words in verse 13. Remember, Paul is writing from prison, and this is probably pretty difficult for his original audience to, to know that Paul is suffering. He spent three years ministering in Ephesus, and he loved them, and they loved him. Paul shared the gospel with the Ephesians. He spent a lot of time with them, and they went through so much together. They had a deep connection with him, and it must have pained them to know that Paul was imprisoned and that his future was unclear. So Paul writes in verse 13, he says, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. With the phrase, so then, Paul is putting his imprisonment in perspective, in perspective of the entire history of the earth and the universe and, and beyond that. Look back through uh, the passage with me real quick here. Verse 1, right? It sets the stage. says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus. Verse 5, Paul looks back at how the previous generations had not had the mystery revealed to them. Verse 9 says, the mystery had been hidden for ages. Verse 10 expands further by saying the mystery has now been made known to the angels 
and the demons in the spiritual realm. Verse 11, Paul is basically saying the mystery is being revealed and it's following God's eternal plan. And once we get to verse 13, Paul is saying, don't be discouraged by my imprisonment. It is a tiny little thing compared to what has been revealed, compared to the mystery. Yes, his readers are probably discouraged that Paul is in prison, but he wants them to think in terms of eternity. What seems like a setback for the gospel, Paul says that is not the case. He is saying, look at what is happening with this revelation of this mystery. Paul asks his audience not to be discouraged over his afflictions on their behalf because it is for their glory. Paul believed in this mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles so confidently that he was willing to do whatever it took, including being imprisoned and, if needed, to die for the gospel message. Paul saw his suffering for the gospel as such a small thing compared to the overarching storyline of eternity. He told the Ephesians that his affliction was for their glory. This means that Paul's affliction was a joyful sacrifice for their inclusion in the church. As the New Living Translation puts it, they should feel honored by his suffering for them and not discouraged. Paul was not only arrested for advocating for the Gentiles, but he knew of the potential dangers of him going to Jerusalem. He knew that some of the Jews were angry at him, some wanted him arrested, and some wanted him dead for the preaching to the Gentiles and advocating for their inclusion. Paul was willing to endure affliction for the gospel. Now, obviously, you know where this application point has to head. That we all should be ready and willing to sacrifice for the gospel and for the church. Perhaps you are thinking, but that was the that was the Apostle Paul, right? He of course he was willing to endure suffering, right? And I would argue that one, there's no such thing as super Christians, and Paul would also argue that when he says, I am the least of these, I am the worst sinners, worst of the sinners. And secondly, I would say that. God may call anyone he wants to suffer for the gospel. This past week, I found the story of the life of Gladys Aylward. Has anyone ever heard of Gladys? Oh, yes. All right. Gladys, you should look her up. I can't even say everything that happened to Gladys in this sermon. I tried, really. I tried. It was like two pages long. So I'll give you a brief summary, and you can go look up Gladys. Gladys Aylward. She was born in London in 1902. She felt a call to be a missionary to China when she was in her teens. She was accepted into an introductory three-month course for people who wanted to be missionaries to China. She was not offered further training because she struggled to learn Chinese. But that didn't stop her. In 1930, she decided to go to China herself and spent her entire life savings on a train ticket to China. After being detained by the Russians, and that's a whole other story, she eventually made it to China. <laughs> There's a lot, I tell you. Don't just look at Wikipedia. Find a website that gives you the entire story. <laughs> 
so when she arrived to China, she worked with a veteran missionary by helping her work at the inn, taking care of travelers and sharing Jesus with them. She was then given a Chinese government job as a foot inspector, basically making sure that the people were not practicing an illegal ancient Chinese practice of foot binding, which stunted the growth of young girls' feet to keep them uh, to have small feet. Terrible. But Gladys was able to share Jesus with these young girls as she went from town to town with the officers. Gladys adapted to the Chinese culture and even became a naturalized Chinese citizen. She loved the people, learned several different dialects, and even thought like they did. And in 1938, Japan bombed the town that Gladys was in, and she became trapped underneath the rubble of the town. But that didn't stop her. Gladys continued to help people. She was rescued.